It's Friday, July 2nd. From The Recount and iHeartRadio, this is the News Items Podcast, bringing you analysis and interviews based on my newsletter, News Items. Today, we have the full run of my interview with David Barboza, founder of The Wire China, a digital magazine focused on China's economic rise and its emergence as a global superpower. Prior to launching The Wire, David served as the Shanghai bureau chief for The New York Times. He's the recipient of two Pulitzer Prizes, one for exposing high-level corruption in China's government, the other as part of a team for explanatory journalism on Apple's business practices. David and I talk about how The Wire China came to be, his career in journalism, and the reign of Xi Jinping. Before we dive into the interview, I just want to say one thing. I'll be on vacation next week, and thus so will News Items, the podcast. This will be the last episode in your feed until Monday, July 12th. Now, on to my conversation with David. Welcome to the News Items podcast. David Barboza is our guest. David, thank you very much for being here. Wonderful to be here. I would like you to describe how The Wire China came to be. I mean, you had a great job at The New York Times, which you were very good at. You were very well regarded there, and it was obviously a going concern. And yet you wander off and start an expensive digital magazine, uh, as well as a data feed. How did you get from point A to point B? Good question. Uh, I'm going to try to give you the short version of of this answer. Uh, I think a lot of it goes back to how I got into journalism. By printing my own magazine or kind of newspaper magazine from home with a mimeograph machine, with my typewriter, doing all the photos, doing the layout. And I loved it. That's That's how I got into journalism, by producing as a high school student my own newspaper. And I think Although I loved my job at the Times, I was at the Times for 20 years, I did think often about at some point, would it be possible to uh, be more engaged in producing the entire product? I love graphics and I often work with the New York Times graphics team. I talked to the photographers. All of that to produce something was important. And so in my sort of the latter end of my time in China, and I was there from 2004 to 2015, almost into 16, I had talked to the New York Times about the possibility of us developing a product in China, a news magazine that would focus on finance, that would maybe be based in Hong Kong. And that got me very excited about the possibility of lots of the interviews that I I did as a reporter those get thrown out, very few quotes get in. Would it be possible to do something very much focused on China with more in-depth interviews, with graphics and photographs, and not a story that I do you know, once a month, but a more regular thing? And so that sort of dream of doing that evolved. I left China in 2015, at the end of 2015, I came here to Boston to to be a fellow at Harvard, a Neiman Fellow at Harvard, and work on this project. And so the idea that, that I had in working on this project was, could we develop a weekly publication about China that's at the level of the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal? Could we also provide data 
in, in not only for the journalists, but also for anyone else that wants more data about China? And could we produce a high quality publication all about my favorite topic, which is how China's economic rise is changing things all over the world? So that was the dream. And uh, I worked on it at Harvard. I took it to the New York Times. We talked about it. But in the end, I decided it, it might be a good idea to leave the Times and try to, to go out on this venture and do something really, um, really, I guess, crazy, is to start a publication at a time when not a lot of people want to start a news publication. It's not really believed to be making money. But to combine that with data, which, which Bloomberg does so well and, and Dow Jones does so well, and so I took a risk and left the Times in 2019. I, like I said, I loved my job. I loved reporting uh, for the Times. But this was an experiment that I, I felt I had to do. I had, I, I had this urge and this passion to try to do it a little differently. And that's what I'm trying to do with The Wire. And how did you how did you do it? How did you get to the point where you were able to produce what is in fact a world class publication uh, about China? Well, luckily, I found initially seven investors, uh, mostly people I knew. Uh, one of the one of the investors actually came to one of my speeches uh, about China, and uh, he decided he wanted to know what I was doing next and. He joined our group, but mainly these were like family and friends, seed investors. Um, I raised uh, enough money so that just before I left the Times in 2018, I had enough maybe for a year or two to sort of build the magazine and the data terminal. As you probably can imagine, building the data sets and, and hiring engineers is a lot more difficult than hiring a group of journalists to write about China. Um, so the first year I spent most of my effort on data. How do we build the data? How do we collect it from China? How do I find engineers? And I won't go into all the pains and struggles we had, but it was quite difficult to do that in year one. And in year two, uh, it, the effort was on building the magazine and finding some good editors and some good young reporters and uh, using a lot of the story ideas that I had to sort of build up slowly a magazine. So we decided, you know, it would be five articles a week. It would, it would be, you know, it have to be New York Times or Wall Street Journal level. So we want to do, you know, 20 interviews for a cover story and in 10 interviews for like what we call the off-lead story, like very, you should read the articles and say, this team did their homework. That's, right. that's the goal of, of the news publication. Starting the magazine, you, you, you know, it's an enormous amount of work. I remember tell, you telling me that one of the moments of, of the beginning was that uh, a gigantic container arrived at your, uh, on your driveway and that you, we're then faced with the task of, you know, I guess, scanning all of it, right? Mm -hmm. The New York Times actually threw out most of my records and I went back <laughs> and collected them and had, had someone ship them back to me in Boston. Because I think the value of the archives and, and the historical documents, I'm, you know, I was a history major, so I'm very interested in historical documents, but also to use 
your old notes in archives to be able to build new stories. Um, I'm actually, you can't see it, but I'm in a room now with two of my filing cabinets from China right now. I'm working on a story now about Kissinger's secret visit to China in 1971. So those are the kinds of things that you're always looking for, you know, old notes, old records, anything you can pull together and you can build something new that's interesting and connects the past to the present. So with this outfit, the difference was now, because we have Google Drive and we have AWS and all this technology, this to me is what I've always dreamed about is how can you make use of all the research you do without spending half of your time each year just organizing your records? Right. And from the beginning to now, how has China changed? Well, um, quite dramatically, much more dramatically than my record-keeping system. You know, when I went to China, I remember the editors saying to me, you know, you ought to think about the stories that you're going to do from China. This is 2004. Um, and is China going to be able to move up the value chain and not just sell cheap goods to Americans? Right. You know, that was, that was for years we thought the big story is when China would turn a corner and, and not just you know, so Nike clothing or apparel, uh, but actually have their own brands and their own companies. And for a long period, we thought, well, it's, it's still China's making low cost goods. It's, it's stealing intellectual property. It's not developing its own brands and IP. And then in the last five years, all of those things that we thought were kind of not happening seem to all happen at once really quickly. So all of a sudden, China has lots of technology startups. And it has even the startup that is challenging Facebook like TikTok. It has more biotech startups. It has right. advanced in AI, like all of those things that I kind of thought would happen if you if you send 300,000 Chinese students to the US to study and they're getting right. and they're in all the top programs for computer science and everything else. How can they not develop? Because most are going to return home. Um, I did think it was it was going to take a period of time. Um, in some ways, the beginning was slower than we thought, but the last five to seven years have been way faster than anyone imagined. So I think China is tremendously different than when I got there. Not only more capable, but more global and more and has more leverage and strategy skill than anyone outside China could have ever imagined. And I like to tell people that, you know, when you're living in China, you realize that um, China is the home of great strategy. Everyone is a strategist. <laughs> and uh, every interaction, wh whether you're buying something on the street or renting an apartment, there's a strategy there. And I think you're seeing that on the world stage is China gains leverage. It knows how to, how to win without having a lot of, a lot of capital in, right. in some ways. Right. It knows how to beat Americans, you know, American companies and, and foreign companies. So all of these things are now kind of coming out in a way that no one quite expected. Um, so there's just no comparison to my first few years in China. Uh, China was coming out, and now it's clearly 
you know, it's, it's out. I covered the Olympics in 2008. That was supposedly their coming out party. Um, but things are just, you know, very, very different today than they were back then. One strategy that uh, the Chinese have employed is the Belt and Road Initiative. I'm, I'm not certain that many of our listeners have a good idea of what the Belt and Road Initiative is. So I was wondering if you could sort of give a brief fill on that and then tell us how, how it's going and the purpose of it. Sure. I mean, I think the Belt and Road kind of came apart about accidentally. Um, I really don't think it was there at their plan initially. Um, there was a lot of excess capacity in China back then. And there was talk about, well, if China is going to slow down, what are they going to do with all this construction equipment and all this construction capacity? Right. And so there was talk about, well, they could help other countries build it up. They could, you know, they were actually... Um, in Shanghai, when I was there, they were building the San Francisco Bay Bridge in Shanghai, and then they were going to ship it. They, they literally shipped the bridge from Shanghai to San Francisco. Um, so that kind of building, I think, was the foundation of the Belt and Road Initiative, which is how do they help countries supposedly first along the old Silk Road in between China and Europe they were going to help build up all these places. But then it also started to maybe dawn on people that this was also a diplomatic strategy. It was a way to build alliances. It was a way to um, have, a, a, you know, test out Chinese technologies in third countries, um, not just construction, but all sorts of things. Like we can, we can, the Belt and Road, we can not only build your bridges and your roads, but we can provide you 5G or we can sell you mobile phones or we can set up Chinese factories outside of, of China since the cost of, of labor in China is going up. So I think the Belt and Road in a way also was perfectly timed for them. Um, and it came very fast. You know, people thought, oh, Belt and Road, what is that? All of a sudden, everyone is talking about the Belt and Road Initiative China knows how to get every country to sign up right. um, and every multinational to come to the conferences. And so with that kind of push, it's, it's still not clear to me that this has been a success or not a success. But one thing that has been remarkable about the Belt and Road Initiative is that everyone knows, has, has heard the phrase, right. um, just like right. made in China 2025. Right. They right. know how to come up with a phrase to do marketing. Um, I mean, for a country that is not known for its brands, right. um, they know how to market and they know how to build a consensus around an idea and push that out. And as you know, during the Trump administration, there was all of this pushback of let's counter the Belt and Road Initiative. I think even recently, maybe a week ago or so, the Biden administration talked about um, financing. Yes telecom equipment or we will we will give you loans and 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 money if you will buy you know if you won't buy or if you'll decide right. to turn down Huawei and ZTE equipment. Right. So I think the Belt and Road is now seen as a very different thing. Not just about China's economic development, but about its political development, about its strategy and about its leverage on the rest of the world and the ability to squeeze maybe some of the multinationals, but also the other countries 
um, that we we have a network that is pro-China, that is supportive of China, that is using Chinese equipment, um, that we can do it better and cheaper, and we can even finance it. Um, so I think a real challenge to the U.S.-led order, the World Bank, the IMF, this is a this is China's way of doing it. And it's a pretty powerful mix of incentives and threats in a way, right? Right. The Belt right. and Road can also be, you know, like a threat. Right. If you don't <laughs> join in, uh, you might not get the right things. Right. <laughs> the port may not be built. Yes, exactly. And the goods may not come. We're going to take a quick break here, hear a word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back with David Barbosa. Welcome back to News Items. You did a really interesting interview with Clyde Prestowitz in the most recent issue of The Wire, and he pointed out that the central idea of U.S. foreign policy for the longest time was that by opening up markets and engaging China, quote-unquote engaging China, inevitably some sort of open markets democratic capitalism would take hold there. That proved to be spectacularly untrue. Given that, what did you take away from the interview with Clyde, and what do you think the Biden administration strategy is, I guess, uh, given the collapse of the prior rationale? Right. Well, about the Prestowitz interview, what I've been seeking for for the Q&As that we do is, can I find people that articulate the challenges that the U.S. and China face in this new world order. And I think he, you know, I've gotten a lot of response from that interview, from people that read that interview with him, even people that disagree with him, that, that he hit upon a lot of the points more directly than others have. Right. And he went after the American companies and the multinationals right. in a way that's more direct and he's less diplomatic than some others. Right. Um, and I, what I took away is you know, a pretty articulate position about asking, in a way, even though he has lots of opinions about what went wrong, I think posing the question to Americans, the politicians, but also the business leaders to ask, what really happened in the 90s and 2000s with regard to China? Um, How do things look now? And were there mistakes made, right, about did we have the wrong ideas about China's development? Did we have wrong ideas about the WTO and whether this would lead to democracy or even even a free market? Right. Because China's, China's system is not a free market system either. So, and he had lots of anecdotes, I thought, about, uh, there's one in particular, I don't know if you remember where he said that, um, you know, he, 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 was once at a dinner with Zhu Rongji and, and George H.W. Bush. And uh, President Bush said, so Zhu Rongji, how's it going with uh, closing all those state-owned enterprises? <laughs> and uh, the president said, well, you know, um, I mean, uh, the Prime Minister Zhu Rongji said, well, Mr. President, we're not closing the state-owned enterprises. <laughs> we're just reorganizing them. <laughs> and uh, President Bush assumed that, you know, we know that you're really closing them. But in fact, it was not just President Bush. Lots of people that followed China and politicians believed, no, they were going to slowly shut down the state-owned enterprises 
and bring in private enterprises and have a market system just like ours. That was the trajectory or that was that's where the road was leading, including yeah. when I went to China. And I think now we know that it was never completely that way, that China maybe always intended to have a mixed economy, that they they love their state-owned enterprises. They just right. want them to be more efficient. <laughs> and they believe maybe that you need big state-owned enterprises to compete with global multinationals, which China does not have. Right. So we're not, they weren't going to wait for private companies to grow into big companies like Alibaba and Tencent, but they're going to start with the state-owned enterprises. And maybe they believe that those can be as good as a, as a multinational. So I think Prestowitz's interview was sort of like a, we've heard similar things before, but a, you know, a wake up to a lot of people about what has happened, how should we think about it, what should be done. And in some ways you can read it and say, is it too late? Um, and that's where I'll get to the second part of your question is the Trump administration or the Biden administration or the post Biden administration, the next administration, um, how are they going to deal with China? The game is completely changed. You can't now say to a country that you're fully integrated with economically and in every way, your supply chain, um, that you're going to demand that they make these certain changes or else. And then you're going to get to the or else. And well, right. well I'm, I'm using an, an iPhone now and I'm <laughs> using my desktop computer from Apple and basically everything in my office was made in China. Um, I don't think I have the leverage in many of these instances to decide what's going to happen. So it's going to be a very different negotiation now. Um, that period in the early 2000s or even maybe as late as 2005, that's long gone. Hmm. And so there's a new China. It is fully integrated and there's nothing you do to China that won't come back and hurt yourself. Yeah. And they know that. So I think, uh, I don't think Prestowitz mentioned the answers and I don't think the Biden administration probably is well suited yet enough to know what to do, but any administration is going to be in a pickle to figure out how do I deal with not just my competitor and rival, but my supplier. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's that's it, right? Every piece of the iPhone is built in China. That's right. As Presto had said in that interview. And I read the Bloomberg feed, you know, virtually every day. And uh, Goldman Sachs, Citi, J.P. Morgan Chase are just they're just getting more and more entwined uh, with China. And so anything that the U.S. might do is going to inevitably lead um, pushback from those companies to say, don't do that. That's that's an integral part of our business. It's really, if you look at it in the big picture, it's, it's extremely shrewd. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, as I said, uh, I'm looking back at the, you know, I'm reading now the the transcripts of Kissinger's initial meetings with Joe and Lai in that on that seventy one trip. I mean, mm -hmm. now you can you can read the full notes of those meetings. Wow! And uh, it's remarkable to read them how sharp Joe and Lai was in those meetings, um, going head to head with Kissinger, who's a very sharp guy, right? Um, and in those negotiations, and I think. Here was a country that had, you know, it was 
impoverished. It was, you would think it was, you know, it was, it thought the threat of the USSR invading China at that time. Right. They were, they were thinking we're going to be bombed. We're building, we're digging air raid shelters right. out. And you can go into negotiations with the US government at that time and battle them toe to toe, every line for line uh, in that kind of conference with that kind of strategy doesn't look like they're coming from a, you know, a position of strength. So imagine doing that kind of thing every decade with global leaders and now with the biggest, you know, companies in the world, the American CEOs, the multinationals, they are great at that. They are great at using leverage at finding weaknesses. And so the U.S. and the rest of the world is going to have to up its game because this is a very different situation. Um, even 10 years ago, I'm sure they couldn't imagine the situation we're in now. The, uh, your perhaps colleague up in, up in Cambridge, Graham Allison, wrote a book called The Thucydides Trap. And the basic idea is that the rising power inevitably comes into conflict with the, the hegemon. How do the Chinese see the... Thucydides trap narrative or metaphor? How, how do they, uh, is that something that they buy into or do they think that they can just slowly overwhelm? My thinking is that, you know, I read, I read the book and the way they're coming to it is, of course, we're the challenger, right? Mm-hmm. So, and we know that, we know that the U.S. is going to be alarmed at this challenge coming from China. Um, But also there is a way to play that as their strategy too, right? And I Mm -hmm. think they've done that in their their public relations or their propaganda in the last couple of years, which is um, the U.S. is jealous and uh, does not want to cede ground to the challenger. Right. Uh, We deserve to be here. Right. We worked hard to be here. And now you're just picking on us because not because we're not fair in trade or we steal intellectual property or anything like that, but because you're afraid you're going to lose. Right. And maybe because you're a little racist, they would, they've also mentioned this kind of thing right. um, about, you know, that you don't want an Asian challenger. Right. So I think if anything, they're, they're, they've studied, they've read that book. Uh, <laughs> they, they know. Um, they probably also know the risks, um, you know, and they saw that clearly during the Trump administration of the blowback. Um, and they have to be concerned, right? Obviously that, especially with COVID, that there is so much, um, anti-China rhetoric around the world, but they're positioning themselves as, uh, the new kid on the block We're we're going to, we've deserved this position. China was once, you know, the leader of the world anyway. And so we're just getting back to where we were many centuries ago. And it's our time. Uh, I think that's, that's what Xi, Xi Jinping certainly wants to play that. It's, he's the one that took them over the final hill um, right. and got them to this uh, China dream period. It's astonishing. It really is. I wanted to ask, um, speaking of Henry Kissinger, Niall Ferguson wrote a book about Kissinger, and and he said that one thing about the negotiations, I wonder if this is true, 
But one thing about the negotiations is Kissinger had a sort of laundry list of, quote, issues, end quote, that he wanted to hit on in his discussions with uh, Zhou Enlai, and that Zhou Enlai basically was all about Taiwan, Mm -hmm. and that they had to come, you know, with the very clever language that they came up with to allied that issue. Um, Taiwan, obviously, very much in the news these Mm -hmm. days. What's your view of that? And... uh, if you can, I guess, sort of describe how you think it might play out here in the next year or five years or 10 years. Yeah, I've uh, I've been reading, as I said, the transcripts and thinking a lot about Taiwan, obviously, because also Taiwan is the center of the chip manufacturing world. Right. Um, I don't know enough about the politics to know how China is positioning that I do, in in reading the transcripts, I obviously saw that that was the most important point. Right. If Kissinger didn't, on that initial trip, agree to something on Taiwan, there would have been no Nixon visit the next. They would have, they would have kept delaying it. Right. They were going to make sure they got that as, as close as they could to where they wanted it to be. I think they, they wanted this, as Ferguson mentioned, China wanted this opening up as much as the U.S. did, right? Um, uh, but they were going to do it on their own terms, and you can see that even from that position of weakness, the issue of Taiwan was so important; it remains really critical. Um, and the remarkable thing now is, I mean, no one could have even predicted this kind of thing. Like that, so one of the most important technologies in the world. Semi, maybe the most important, the, the production of semiconductors would be stationed in Taiwan. Right. <laughs> uh, and so close to China, making the, the threat to Taiwan even greater for the United States. Right. Um, and so um, what I've heard recently, and I, and I think it was in our cover story last week, is it would be pretty dangerous for China to do anything with regard to Taiwan that would lead to blockades or actually the closing of those of those manufacturing facilities and, right. and the true cutting off of all of that. So I guess I, I'm not, you know, a political expert, but I, I think the the rhetoric is really heated. I, I kind of when I read it every day, I'm just hoping everyone's rhetoric can be toned down. Right. Uh, but right. I can't imagine a war breaking out because there's, you know, that war would be the final war, right? There's, there's not. If if there's a war, that's that's it. That's the big um, one. <laughs> so they can't they can't go to war over this. But maybe what's, what we're really going to see, and what we're already beginning to see, is it's it's going to be like a cold war, but it's going to be a full fledged economic cold war. Right. Meaning not just blockades, but or or not creating war in other third countries. Uh, playing it out, but actually the war is on the economic plane. So who is going to be ahead in AI? Who is going to be ahead in space? You know, this kind of thing, even the idea that countries would find China coming and saying, take Huawei in the US, the Americans coming and saying, don't take Huawei, the Belt and Road, all that stuff is going to be very interesting to watch that this is a war front where every country, even tiny Pacific islands, are part of the war front, right? They're, they're all 
involved in this? Who are you going to recognize? Who are you going to work with? How is this economic game going to play out when China makes most of the world's goods right. and the U.S. Right. has still most of the world's high technology? Right. Um, I think that's where that's what I'm trying to think about here with our magazine and, and as a journalist is can we cover this in the right way where you give people as much as possible without just doing war reporting, not just like right. they fired a shot and they fired a shot, but right. what's the history? What led to this? What are the different fronts in technology and economics and other things? I think that's the kind of reporting we need now. And also let's hear from lots of different voices about what do we do? Right. The, the best solutions might come from, listening to uh, not people in government, but people outside of government, maybe talk about what's possible. One thing that that COVID revealed was uh, the difference between just in time and just in case, China being just in case and the US and uh, sort of global capitalism in general being just in time. Um, Is is there a way to unravel just in time in any kind of I guess, timely fashion. I mean, it it seems to me that once you've built this incredible infrastructure, you're sort of wedded to it. And that gives China just incredible leverage, right? That's right. And, uh, you know, this did occur to me a lot while I was living in China, visiting the factories. And I asked myself, if everything is in China, isn't that a risk? Um, (laughs) I mean, not that they, I didn't think that they would, you know, like, cut off the supply chain or anything, but, but just, it, it seemed like, wow, if, if anything did happen, how do you get your stuff out? And, you know, China is in some ways unpredictable. So it wasn't the idea just that they would cut off the supply chain, but how do you disentangle such a just in time complicated, everyone makes a little piece of something and it gets glued together in China? Um, I don't really see that happening even in a decade. Um, you know, I know that things are now moving to Vietnam, to Turkey, to other places, but this system has been built over the last 15 years with such precision and efficiency. I can recall going to the Nike factory and seeing there were something like 350 steps just to produce a Nike sneaker. I mean, there are some people that I specialize just in putting the glue on the heel. Right. right. How do you then build something that can replicate all of that? People have talked about robots, that this could be the answer to some of this. And that's why China is, has more robots than any other country in the world right now. So it may be possible to do some of that manufacturing at home, but then you have to think about well, all the supply chain that built up around China to mm. get the plastics, to get the glues, to get the buttons, to get all of the ingredients and raw materials, to get the mines, to get the right metals. So um, I guess, you know, maybe in a decade they can figure out alternative supply chains. But I think one of the things that it just occurs to me is the era of ultra cheap goods is probably over unless you have new technologies with robots and new materials um, 
doing what China, there, there is maybe India, but there seems to be no other place in the world except possibly India that could take that mantle from China. And I doubt India could too, because it, it also requires having almost like a military-like operation of your factories. Right. I'm not so sure India is going to adopt that. <laughs> so um, what other country can go online and say, we're going to do all of that hard work and we're going to do it for rock bottom prices. And the work, if it left China, there's not enough countries in the world to take up that work. Um, it would be very hard to find that much low cost skilled labor. So yeah. I don't, in, in a long way, I'm saying, I don't really know where it goes next other than a technology solution. One game change, obviously, was what happened in Wuhan in December 2019 and January 2020. China's reaction to the outbreak led, at one point, I think, to as many as 80 million people being under some form of lockdown and some number of millions literally locked into their homes. They beat the virus, and after that first wave, there seems to be kind of a semi-second wave, if you will, going on. But they seem to have that under control as well. They've been remarkably opaque about what happened. And I wondered, what is your take on the various theories about what happened in Wuhan? Uh, I don't know that I want to jump into what happened because I'm so far away. But I think one thing that's clear that we've learned in the last year is that China doesn't believe in a, in a free press or a transparency. You know, obviously that is, puts them in a very difficult position because you just basically have to, if you're outside of China and you, and you see what they've done with the free press and with transparency, you have to expect the worst or guess the worst. Right. And I think that's caused, that's what's caused all of these problems about the lab leak theory and others. It's not that they're true or not true or that anyone really knows it's the absence of trust in the government that leads people to speculate and to jump to conclusions um, when someone rushes or, or puts such an effort in stopping people from talking about it. Right. And I think this is a problem that I witnessed in most of my time in China, <laughs> is the government does not like the media, they do not like the free press, you know, Press conferences in China are often staged and the questions are handed in beforehand. So this problem they've had or this, this way of dealing with um, openness has been persistent for the, you know, the entire time. But it's gotten, it got slightly better and then worse and then better and worse. And I think it's clear under Xi Jinping it got much worse, as, as we know from the reporters who have been expelled and, and the criticism. Um, China is an authoritarian government. It does not like an opposition. It does not want protests of even five people. Um, when I was, like, I think my first or second year in China, there was a small gathering of protesters in front of our building. Uh, they were protesting something across from our building, but immediately buses came, the police came, and they, you would think that there, this was like a, a major demonstration and they crushed it in seconds that even small efforts by dissidents, even someone posting on Weibo or WeChat is seen as a threat to the party. Um, so they crack down on this thing. And, and the downside of that for them, I think, and, and for maybe the rest of the world, is that 
it leaves this big question mark often over everything that they do. As you know from the news about, you know, the problems, the possible problems at a nuclear plant in Guangdong province, um, why is that news? It's news because anything that happens in China, they suspect, is it is this a replay of Wuhan? Is this a replay of SARS? Is there an effort to to censor and keep out anything that could be damaging? And so people are, you know, now accustomed to overreacting to things that happen in China because they don't trust that the government will be forthcoming. And the fact is they're they're not very forthcoming. I have two more questions before we let you go. Sure. Um you know, there's been a lot of uh, discussion, I guess, about uh, the financial system in China and uh, the soundness of it. I wanted to get your view of uh, a country laden, laden, obviously, with extraordinary debt, not unlike our own. Are there real concerns regarding the stability of the financial system, or can they just sort of pr- do what we're doing and print their money, print their way out of it, so to speak? Well, uh, John, this was one of the stories I covered most aggressively in China, trying to figure out the debt problems, the financial transactions, and trying to understand how is the economy going to continue to grow after all these years of not only fast growth, but also debt buildup. And you can see, I can tell you, my first trip to China when I was going to be stationed there I was told in 2004 that the big story I would be covering in the next year or so would be the collapse of the Chinese economy. Mm. And then I was told in 2008 that uh, we're going to see the collapse of the Chinese economy. And in 2012, and I wrote many stories about these problems. And, And what I'm kind of convinced now after all of these years of covering China is that it is a different enough system that the tools we use to examine it are flawed, is, is maybe as flawed as, as the Chinese system is, because it is a hybrid system with capital controls, with superpowers that the government has, um, also with so many people that what you think is a ghost town could suddenly be filled in a, in a month, uh, that all of a sudden the people come out. And, and so... Certainly, they've had lots of financial problems, and they've dealt with this. You've seen banks collapse and takeovers by the government, including H&A, which I covered. But I think what we have learned is that these different tools and superpowers and the fact that China is still the engine of growth for so much of the world, and the people work really hard, and we continue to buy more and more of their goods. So they have strengths, I would say, that other countries couldn't dream of having because of all of those ties and all that sweat that they've put in to having a stake or control in every kind of field, um, no matter what you're looking at. Like uh, when I was in China, I could never imagine that they would, you know, the, a Chinese brand would, would start up and they would ship directly to American consumers for half the cost of Gap or Zara. You know, we wrote about this this company recently in China. It's it's remarkable the ingenuity and I would say the innovation and the hard work of Chinese entrepreneurs. And that's why a lot of people are thrown off. How does this 
authoritarian state-run system also have this. It's because China is gigantic. It has everything. And so these things can exist at the same time. It can have a dynamic economy of entrepreneurs and a badly managed state economy at the same time. Finally, I wanted to ask you, the President Xi, Mm -hmm. uh, who sort of um, established himself as president for life, is his political standing secure, I guess is the right word? I mean, sometimes he seems on one hand all-powerful, and sometimes I look at him and I think he's like a cat on a hot tin roof. Which is closer, or are they both true? I think most people would say what's easy to say, which is, he looks all powerful and it looks like there's not going to be any challenge to his leadership that that those challengers came in his first term and uh, you saw some opposition as he was changing things and now everything has gone quiet and i would say that's my experience too that that before he became president for life there were a lot of people um trying to oppose him and now all those people have gone into hiding or, or been very silent. Um, but I think that doesn't mean there is not an opposition. It means that the conventional wisdom now is that Xi Jinping is the president for life. He is not going to be challenged. But from what I know of China, it can swing from very orderly to very chaotic very quickly. And uh, I think it's clear from his actions over the years that they are worried about an assassination attempt in opposition, even from overseas, that efforts would be coming like Guo and Gui, the Miles Kwok, um, and others, that there is always this threat. And also, COVID could have turned in the wrong way for the Chinese leadership. I think there was concern when COVID broke out that this could be the end of Xi Jinping. If this thing gets really bad and he loses control in China, he could be wiped out really fast. Everyone is waiting for the moment that something big happens and Xi Jinping falls. And I think the party operates on that paranoia. And right. so if you see that they're constantly nervous, you think things may not be as stable as they seem from afar. And so I would imagine that while it looks stable now, while Xi Jinping looks strong, that something could happen any moment that could challenge his leadership and then give the confidence to the opposition to strike now. I I think for me watching from this distance, I expect any year there could be an opponent that comes up and he's wiped out. I don't think it'll be so stable. I think we'll leave it there. David, thank you very much. And for our listeners, David's magazine is called The Wire China. If you Google The Wire China, it will pop right up, and I highly recommend it. David, thank you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure, John. Take care. Thanks for tuning into the News Items podcast. This podcast is based on my newsletter, which is available at newsitems.substack.com. We're off next week, but we'll be back on Monday, the 12th of July. Tune in then for some fresh news analysis. We look forward to seeing you then. News Items is produced by Christian Castro-Rossell, Pierre Bienname, Ali Rogers, and Megan Burney. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby, and our recording engineer was the great Simran Singh.